Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. What is going on with the Speaker of the House on the panel to discuss that and more this morning? Global BC's Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman and the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, we'll hear from journalism professor Sean Holman to discuss the nuances and problems with the Speaker's office. So off the top, good morning to Keith, Vaughn, and Richard. Guys, how are you? Good morning. There we go. Good morning. <laughs> uh, first off, by the way, uh, welcome back, Vaughn. Uh, you were on the shelf for a little bit. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, really good to be back. Uh, met with my doctor on Monday. He said, oh, yeah, you can go back to work. I had knee replacement surgery. He said, you can go back to work. Try to stay off your feet and remain quiet. <laughs> funny, right? Yeah, funny. Yeah. It's been a hell of a week to be quiet. We've got uh, some uh, breaking news here, Shane. I don't know if you checked your email, but uh, we, just, we all just got an email from Elections BC that the voting period for the referendum has been expired. December 7th. Oh, wow. Okay, there we go. Very, very good move, Elections BC, uh, because of the postal situation. Yeah. Need another week to get their votes in. Oh, interesting stuff. We'll touch on that a little later in the show, but the big topic around the province and certainly in political circles right now is uh, the situation with the Speaker of the House, Daryl Plekis, uh, and this frog marching of Craig James and Gary Lenz, uh, the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms, uh, off the legislative grounds. They're suspended with pay. Uh, we're not entirely sure why at this point, uh, officially, although Maybe we can shed some light on that in the next few minutes here. Uh, Vaughn, why don't we start with you, because I, I want to kind of break this down into manageable chunks. Uh, first off, on the process itself, Craig James, Gary Lenz, apparently knew nothing about this. Mike Farnworth stands in the House, uh, moves a motion that's passed unanimously. They're going to be suspended with pay. Uh, a very flustered and uh, deer-caught in the headlights, Craig James is thrown in front of cameras. He doesn't know what's going on. Uh, they get escorted off the grounds by police, and this whole ball gets, uh, gets rolling. So on the process itself, I thought you wrote an interesting column about uh, there needs to be some answers here. Is this, was this the best way to handle this thing? Look, yes, I think that's the first question. The, the, upon the speaker being informed that these two were the subject of a police RCMP investigation and two special prosecutors had been appointed, uh, the, immediately it was apparent that they had to be placed on administrative leave. Because they're officials of the legislature appointed by the entire House, and on a permanent basis, it took a motion of the legislature to put them on administrative leave with full pay, and that's what was being done. But there's a couple of things that happened that I think were unnecessary. The first is that they were called to the Speaker's office, the two of them. And while in the Speaker's office, they see this unfold on live television on the Hansard Channel. The first they know that they're under a cloud is, as I say, on live television. Then they're informed to get out of the building, take their personal effects with them, turn in their keys and their, and their phones, and they're escorted from the building by Victoria Police. I think the public spectacle was unnecessary. I think they're entitled to some kind of an explanation for why they are having to leave. And I think the public is intent, uh, entitled to an explanation for why it had to be done this way. So that is the first of a series, uh, in my view, of controversies involving these events at the legislature this week. Now, Keith, I know that you have uh, had a line of questioning in the press conferences that I've been listening to about whether MLAs are comfortable with how this whole thing has been carried out. Uh, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of them, including the leaders. What's, what's your sense about the, the satisfaction within the legislature? Oh, 
there's a lot of unhappy MLAs on all sides of the uh, the aisle here about how this has been handled. They don't, they're reluctant to talk publicly or go on camera. They're hoping this just sort of goes away uh, for a while, which it will. Uh, this criminal investigation will go on a long time. But uh, Gary Lenz and Craig James were very, are very well-liked and very well-respected around the legislature. You know, you have to re- remember a lot of people on this. Legislature is like a tiny little village. Uh, there's, you know, a couple hundred people who work in there, and you see each other every single day. And, you know, from the, from the janitor to the premier, it's, uh, it's the same people walking around the hallways. And uh, Les Lane, our friend at the Times Columnist, uh, had a good call this week. They pointed out he would probably see Gary Lenz and Craig James 10 or 12 times a day and have an interaction with them, and they're very helpful. And so when they get treated this way in a shabby uh, manner where uh, the Speaker's office and, and the, the political aid to the Speaker has become a quite the uh, political uh, hot potato here, yeah. he, he takes it upon himself. Uh, like Nobody knows who this guy is. Nobody knows what credentials or credibility he has. He takes it upon himself to call in the Victoria Police to ask them to escort these two guys out of the building. That was very troubling for many people. I was talking to one of Gary Lenz's security uh, detail yesterday, one of the senior guards in the hallway, and he was he was very frank about how upset he was with the speaker, how upset he was that Gary Lenz was treated this way. Uh, it's just uh, the morale of the security detail, I can tell you. And I know a lot of the security guards there. I t- talk to them constantly uh, and known them for years. They're very bummed out about this, the, the way this, this was handled in such a shabby way again by a speaker's office that has now come under scrutiny for all the wrong reasons and whose credibility is very much on the line. Uh, Richard, to you, and I mean, we don't know how this is going to end up. There's some potential avenues this play could go down. Uh, maybe Mr. Lenz and, and Mr. James are up to something they shouldn't have been, and there's some meat to the bone as far as uh, potential wrongdoing. Or maybe the RCMP, after whatever time this process takes, uh, decides there's there's nothing here and there's no charges. And, I, and I'm concerned with the way the process unfolded and publicly frog-marching these guys out. If at the end of the day there's nothing here, uh, I would think that opens us up taxpayers uh, at least to to some kind of a lawsuit as these guys look to recover damages. Yeah, you would think so, because they no doubt believe they've been uh, unfairly treated. Uh, Craig James and Gary Lenz haven't spoken to reporters on the record uh, since they were escorted out of the building, so it's unclear where they're at with their legal process. But no doubt uh, it was mishandled, and there's a lot of frustration about sort of where do we go now, because we have to let this investigation play out. We've received very little information from the RCMP about what they're actually looking at here, how long it may take, what are the responsibilities of these two special prosecutors in terms of what information do they have in front of them, uh, what did the Speaker's office discover that they turned over in August. So there's still a lot of questions about that process, and I think you're right, Shane, to be frustrated about the process of all of this. And You know, sure, taxpayers may be on the hook for legal costs and all of this, but these are two people's lives, right? They dedicated their lives to public service, and if they were mistreated in this, that would be a gross injustice, I think. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about uh, the Speaker, Daryl Plekis, himself. Um, I'm struck by this whole series of events about this clandestine investigation, uh, and then he calls in his buddy. Uh, this job wasn't put out to tender. Uh, he just gets a job, shows up at the legislature. He takes part in this clandestine investigation. The legislature is kept in the dark about this whole thing until late in the game, and all of a sudden we're off to the races. Vaughn, does something smell here? 
Oh, very, very much so. And look, the most devastating single revelation this week is that on Monday night, when the Speaker calls in the leaders of the three parties in the legislature to say we're going to have to deal with this issue and put these two fellows on administrative leave, right? That's legitimate to raise that with the three parties in the legislature. Uh, he then says in that meeting, you know, when this guy Lenz, the sergeant at arms, is gone, I suggest we appoint my guy as the sergeant at arms of the legislature, Alan Mullen. I mean, at what level does that idea even enter into anybody's logical thinking, a proper behavior, full credit to the three leaders of the three parties that they immediately said no way, but it still raises the question about the speaker's judgment. This guy, Mullen, is hired by the speaker, he's a friend, and he's brought in to oversee this investigation, and he assembles all the evidence over seven months. Speaker doesn't tell the House leaders that this has happened. And then the Speaker tries to engineer him being appointed as a successor to the guy that is being ousted. I mean, that by itself is appalling judgment. I also say, Shane, this morning, I got an email from a private investigator in Vancouver and a second email from a former superintendent of the RCMP both saying exactly the same thing, that this entire way of handling an investigation is wrong because there's no evidence that this guy Mullen, who who conducted the in-house investigation, he has no credentials that anyone's aware of. As a, he's not a former police officer. He's not a lawyer. He claims to have been an investigator, but we've got no details really on that. So the entire process is now under a cloud, as is the Speaker, because of his bad judgment. Keith, does the Speaker of the House or the RCMP, one or both, have uh, an obligation to at least say, we're investigating this, theft, fraud, uh, treason, whatever the thing is, to just say, okay, this is the bailiwick that we're looking at. Uh, does the Speaker of the House at least have to come out and say, listen, here, here's where we're fishing in? Because uh, I talked to the former Speaker of the House, Claude Richmond, yesterday, happened to walk into NL during all this, uh, and he, he called this whole process a banana republic. Flat out said if he was Craig James, he would refuse to leave the legislature until he was told exactly what the investigation was about. Well, that would have been an interesting scene if that had happened. But, um, uh, I've also, well, I've been told by one parliamentary expert that the Speaker's office actually does not have the authority on its own to investigate the table officers, the, the, the clerk of the House and, uh, and the sergeant arms, that anything like this would have to be referred to LAMPSI, the, the Legislative Management Committee. And even then, it's questionable whether it would have the power to investigate the table officers, that in fact, anything like this should have been immediately referred to the police if there was any uh, notion of wrongdoing. And they were the ones tasked to be tasked with uh, the authority to carry out an investigation. Alan Mullen, in particular, quite apart from the Speaker's office not having the authority, uh, a contractor hired by the Speaker's office clearly doesn't have the authority under the legislature rules to conduct this type of investigation. So uh, quite apart from what Craig James and Gary Lenz may or may not have done, this has placed an enormous cloud over the Speaker's office and over the credibility and authority of Daryl Plekis. The problem, though, Shane, is that he serves basically at the pleasure of the House. And the NDP, 
for better or worse, and I think mostly for worse, are stuck with him because they need Daryl Plekis to be the, the, the speaker no matter what he does because of their tight majority in the legislature. Uh, if were he to be ousted or forced out, uh, their majority would be reduced to one, and I, that's just a, a precarious uh, uh, majority for them. So it's interesting when you talk to Mike Farnworth or John Horgan on this in news conferences, they are not enthusiastic at all in expressing their support for Daryl Plekis. Uh, they're wearing this as well, and I, I, they'd like it to go away. And that's a big reason why Wally Opal, the former Attorney General, was pushed into the Speaker's office yesterday. I'm um, told by several, a couple of Cabinet Ministers it was strongly advised of Plekis to make sure Opal goes in there to provide a steady hand and take away the authority of Alan Mullen, who nobody knows who he is, and he was running this clandestine operation for so long. And I can tell you, a lot of MLAs are very upset that this was happening under their noses without their knowledge. Yeah, and I want to uh, address the, the events of yesterday, including the hiring of Ollie Opal after the commercial break, But uh, as we carry on this conversation. But uh, last word to you before we do that, uh, Richard. Uh, the House leaders have some roles to play here. I assume the MLAs do. If Plekis has really gone off the, off the rails, other than Wally Opal, what choices, considering the numbers game, do they have to kind of bring him to heel? None, really, and there's only a few days left in the legislative session until we go on the winter break. And once we get to that point, it would have to be something massive in terms of bringing back the legislature to make any changes within the legislature. So I think uh, Speaker Plekis just needs to weather this for a few more days, and he's safe in terms of his future. But, you know, like Keith, I don't think he's going anywhere because of the balance in the legislature. The House leaders, you, you could just see on... Uh, Liberal leader Mary Polak's face and NDP House leader uh, Mary, uh, Mike Farnworth's face yesterday that they were just sort of felt hoodwinked almost and, and were totally desperated by what had unfolded. And there's a lot of frustration, as Keith was talking about, with a lot of MLAs in the building. Yeah, a lot of twists and turns in the legislature yesterday. Uh, the three gentlemen on my panel were definitely a part of that. We'll pick up our conversation with Keith, Vaughn, and Richard right after a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Richard Zussman, and Vaughn Palmer still on the speaker situation. A crazy day in the legislature yesterday. I want to walk through some of that. It began with Mary Polak, a sworn affidavit. Uh, the speaker tried to get his friend, Mr. Mullen, appointed as acting sergeant at arms. Mike Farnworth then comes up. He says, yes, that's what happened. It was given a firm no. Uh, in all of this, the speaker hasn't spoken uh, to, to reporters and still hasn't as of right now. Uh, and he said at one point, and it caught my ear, Listen, you guys do not have the full story. I will speak to you at 2 o'clock. All of a sudden, no, I'm not speaking to you at 2 o'clock. Uh, you're going to get a statement. And once you read the statement, you'll understand why I can't speak. And I'm not sure in that, uh, after looking back on those events, that he could not have talked or that he should not have talked based on the statement we heard. I'm, I'm just totally puzzled by where he was coming from there, Keith. Yeah, well, it was yesterday was bizarre on that front. Um, <laughs> uh, the speaker has this uh, interaction with us at the door of his uh, his office, and Richard and I were shouting questions at him, and uh, he was saying, "Look, you don't have to basically you don't have the full story. You're going to have I'll make a statement as you mentioned, and, and you'll be surprised at what I have to say." Uh, I took a, for the first time since this whole story broke, found time to squeeze 15 minutes in the legislative dining room to grab a bite, and who stops at my table? Uh, 
to, to have an amiable chat, but Daryl Plackett's the speaker. As if nothing nothing was going on, everything was normal. He said, hey, how's it going? And uh, I said, great. And he said, well, I'm going to talk to you guys at 2 o'clock. And we talked about, he wanted to know if he could do a news conference sitting at his desk because he was more comfortable that way. I said, sure, fine, you know, whatever. And we had a nice, pleasant conversation. And I said, I'll see you in uh, 45 minutes. And he said, great. And 15 minutes later, we get word that, uh, no, there's not going to be any statement. And I had, and he, <coughs> Plackett's told me afterwards, as I read into him in the hallway, that this, the state would make it clear why he couldn't speak. And I can only assume that Wally Opal has now become the spokesman of the of the Speaker's office, or that Plekis seems to think that Opal uh, being there uh, precludes him from talking. The problem Plekis has is it's one thing not to talk about Gary Lenz and, and Craig James going forward in terms of the investigation. I get that. You can't necessarily talk a lot about an ongoing criminal investigation. But he has to explain his actions of the last uh, 10 months when he initiated an, an investigation with his own aid into uh, the officer of the legislature, perhaps in a very improper way, and he won't explain himself. So his, his behavior yesterday was erratic, uh, inconsistent, and again, tarnished his credibility. Vaughn, does the speaker owe it to the people on an accountability, uh, accountability level just to answer reporters' questions? Should he be in front of microphones? Yes, in this case. I mean, historically, it is true. The speaker, the reference, the name is he speaks for Parliament, and he speaks only really with the authority of Parliament. He represents all the members. Uh, and originally, of course, the, the office was installed that the speaker was the one who spoke to the king. Uh, and, and it's a very, very important historical issue for the uh, issue office for that reason. But and traditionally, the speaker does not do press conferences and so forth. But in this case, the speaker's judgment is in question and profoundly in question. I, I do not see any basis on which he could have conducted this clandestine investigation out of his own office with a hand-picked investigator whose credentials are in question. I think based on what we've been told so far, and then try to engineer. The investigator to be installed as the guy who's being forced to go on administrative leave. He's got to explain his judgment around that, and he's not done so. And then to come out yesterday to the news media and, and refuse to take questions because, quote, he's going to get back to us later and do a proper press conference, and we don't have the whole story. So he's suggesting there's something inaccurate about all the reporting on this. And then he runs away from that. So, no, I think his judgment is in question on a number of fronts here, and it's not enough for him now to take refuge behind Wally Opal and the fact that there's a police investigation, he needs to account publicly for his own bad judgment. All right, Richard, do we have you there or have we lost you? Okay, we're, we're, we've lost Richard, but we're going to try and reconnect here. So, Keith, back to you then. Uh, this raises, there's a lot, of, a lot of concerning things going on here, all landing at the doorstep of Mr. Plekis. Mr. Opal has been called in, which is a, a telling thing in and of itself. But do you see, if, if Plekis is not going anywhere, and the numbers game seems to indicate he, he can't, then how do you, uh, will there be changes? Does this, does this Mullen character get sent out the door? I mean, what's going to happen? in there with a view of calming things down, uh, curbing any excesses, bringing a sense of normalcy to the uh, to the office. I think he's going to uh, take Plekis out of the public eye. The House, as Richard noted, of 
a few minutes ago, the House ends next, the session ends next midweek, next Tuesday, and then we go away until February. And so this is going to, this will die down. There's no question. I mean, the investigation of James and Lenz may go on for well more than a year. That's that's, that's the way the RCMP operates. But in terms of Daryl Plekis, I suspect uh, Opal will go in there with some advice to calm things down, curb Alan Mullen's uh, role in this. That's one thing I think you'll see happen. There's no more of this uh, uh, I'm in ch- L. Haig, I'm in charge routine coming from uh, a sort of unknown aid like this. But uh, I, I, this, this, uh, the atmosphere is, gonna, is already starting to, to sort of calm down a bit, and I think the tension will calm down. And I think uh, Opal will just go in there to sort of be the, managing the ship and managing it in a way that uh, was uh, not evident before when the, when the figures office was basically had gone rogue. I think, for a number of months, and I think that's going to stop with Opal. Yeah, uh, I think we've got Richard back. Richard, I know Andrew Wilkinson said yesterday the House leaders will meet to determine next steps. So any idea what what those next steps might be? No, there's no idea, Shane. The thing about this is, you know, we're wildly speculating about so many things, and it's making it... You know, it's obviously a massive distraction here at the building for the legislative agenda of what's going on here. This is totally unprecedented, so I don't think the leaders know what to do next. I don't think the House leaders know what to do next. I think uh, Keith's right that things will calm down because we're heading into a weekend, but very easily something could flare up next week if Alan Mullen pops his head out again and says something, or if Wally Opal says something, or if we actually get some details about what this investigation is all about, all of a sudden it will flare up again. The legislature is just sitting next Monday and Tuesday, so there's not a lot of time. I think, obviously, the story is bigger when the politicians are here, Keith was describing earlier in the show, sort of this is like a little village. And, you know, inside the building, things build very, very quickly. You hear rumblings from one end of the hallway or from another end of the hallway. So I I have no idea what next steps are. The speaker's in his position. Uh, There's now a deputy clerk that's in the clerk's position, a deputy sergeant-at-arms in that position. Uh, Horgan has kept saying the premier has that, you know, the legislature is working as it should. So I have no idea what next steps could possibly be, but I think this, this chaotic nature of what's going on here will will likely continue into next week. Even if there's just a little bit of a spark, it will lead to a huge fire, I think, because that's the way things work here. Yeah. And here's the next step. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. I think it's warranted. Uh, the opposition uh, doesn't have the votes to oust the Speaker, but they do have the votes to embarrass him. And I think it would be entirely legitimate for the Liberals to make it clear given the way the Speaker conducted himself, that either Daryl Plekis, from the chair in the legislature that he occupies as Speaker, provides some sort of public accounting for his own misconduct here and some kind of public justification from the chair of the House for the way he behaved himself on this, and that if he does not do that, and if he does not uh, get rid of his special advisor, Mr. Mullen, that the Liberals will then move a motion of non-confidence in the Speaker. I think it's entirely justified for them to take that action, and I think they should do that before the House adjourns next week, because uh, Richard is quite right. After the House adjourns on Tuesday, there won't be another opportunity to do that until February. But I don't think they should just let this go with some bad publicity in the media. I think they should call the Speaker publicly to account. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, and as well as I think it breathes, uh, put some more fire on the recall campaign that Mr. Plekis uh, uh, may already be facing uh, with some significant uh, Facebook activity, things like that around that as well. So we'll have to see how that develops. Uh, guys, let's take a quick break here and then uh, we'll turn our attention to ride sharing on the other side here on Inside Politics. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. Computer Center. This is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Richard Zussman and all the craziness surrounding the speaker and, and that whole thing. It's, it was almost uh, the whole Uber situation was almost forgotten about, uh, at least for a little while. But it was still a, a really big story this week as we got legislation that uh, roadmaps uh, apparently Uber arriving uh, by 2019, the fall of 2019, although there's some doubt there. Uh, Richard, I know you talked uh, to Uber recently. Uh, they were having their lawyers pour over this thing to determine if it works for them or if they need some legislative change. And it sounds like it does not work for them. Yeah, it does. And I spoke to Michael Van Hemmen yesterday, who's uh, the Uber spokesperson uh, here in British Columbia. And what he basically said is the legislation doesn't work uh, for the model in which uh, Uber operates in basically every other jurisdiction in the world. And uh, they have concerns over uh, the type of licenses that will be required in terms of a Class 4 license. Uh, One of the points Van Hammond made to me is that... uh, Drivers uh, and part of Operation Red Nose who drive other people's vehicles, all they need is a Class 5 license in order to do that. So if the province believes that's safe enough to get people home, um, if they've had too much to drink around the holiday season, then you have to think it would be safe enough for a driver uh, who has already received a criminal background check to get people around on a regular basis. Uh, He also said the cops are problematic. Uh, the fact that uh, the Passenger Transportation Board can control uh, how many vehicles are on the road. The way that ride-sharing companies like Uber and Lyft work is they need to get lots and lots of people uh, behind the wheel of vehicles so that they can uh, ensure that there are very uh, minimal wait times uh, for customers. Uh, there are concerns around pricing that with a control at the TTD in terms of setting a, a floor price that potentially they could just ensure that ride-sharing companies charge the same amount as taxis, which wouldn't work. And there's another amendment that Van Hammen mentioned to me, uh, which the TTD is supposed to assess the current market conditions by consulting with those in the market. And how Van Hammen reads that is basically the current cab companies, those currently operating in this space, could say, well, we don't need any additional service in our communities. And if the PTB listens to them in that regard, they could basically block new entrants. So that includes new taxi companies who may want to enter, but also could include ride-sharing companies. So a long list there. So I think we are still a while away. I know yesterday they were working through the legislature here trying to get some amendments put forward again. We mentioned in the earlier segments only a few days left here to debate this stuff. So uh, I'm not optimistic that the legislation that will be passed next week will be something that works well for Lyft and Uber uh, and other big ride-sharing companies, and then they'll have to make the decision as we start seeing steps and regulations come into effect uh, whether they want to actually operate here in B.C. Andrew Wilkinson took a unusual step of taking to Twitter a few days ago to try and woo some Green Party support to make some changes. Uh, I believe they're going to table their 2017 legislation, the ride-sharing legislation is a private member's bill on Monday. There's no question the Green Party could potentially have some muscle here. The big question, as always, Vaughn, is will they use it? 
No. <laughs> the Green Party, the specialty of the Green Party is to pretend, to put out the notion there that, uh, you know, they believe all parties should work together and uh, they've got no problem working with the opposition at times, but they're never going to do anything to bring down the government because they want the government to survive. They're their partners in sharing power. So even though the Greens are the only party that really has clean hands on riot sharing, they're the only party that have been campaigning openly for it for years, as the Liberals certainly haven't, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think this legislation that we saw from the government government is a recipe for delay, 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 and trying to make sure that never happens, right? Hailing never happens in B.C., and uh, I don't see that the Greens are going to join the Liberals as they could to expedite all that. It wouldn't mean bringing down the government, right? This isn't a bill on which the fate of the government really hangs, but I see no evidence that the Greens are willing to work uh, with the Liberals to do anything to amend the NDP agenda. On the political side of it, Keith, uh, I mean, there's a lot of play here. Obviously, you're trying to placate the taxi industry and uh, important ridings in Surrey and that kind of thing. But I wonder what the kickback is among voters. Uh, I think it's this is one of those issues where no matter who, which party you're voting for, I think you have a pretty strong opinion on ride sharing. And it's especially powerful for the pro, for, for younger voters who potentially the NDP uh, want to get votes from. Uh, are they wise in, in kind of, you know, dicking around this whole thing? I've never detected any evidence that the NDP is enthusiastic about bringing this uh, ride-hailing to B.C. at all. Uh, they are um, mindful, and, and the B.C. Liberals are guilty of the same charge of being somewhat beholden to the existing taxi industry. Uh, Surrey and the suburbs are key ridings that determine the next election outcome, and the taxi industry is very powerful in places like Burnaby and Surrey, South Vancouver. Uh, so I think uh, you couple that with the fact that ride-hailing, uh, the Uber model, is the ultimate free market uh, model for an industry. And the NDP is anything but open free market. They're, not, they're all about regulations and the government running things. And that is just completely counter to the whole philosophy underpinning of, uh, of the ride-hailing concept. So uh, I never thought ride-hailing was going to come under the NDP. They put a bill in there that on paper says, oh, sure, maybe by 2019 we'll have it. But it, it is creating an economic model in which ride-hailing cannot exist, as Michael from Uber said to Richard yesterday. It just doesn't work. Uh, it uh, is at cross purposes with uh, the very f fundamental underpinnings of the entire industry. So I think the NDP's made a political gamble here that at the end of the day, uh, not rocking the boat on the taxi side uh, will uh, will serve them better than opening it up completely to ride-hailing and uh, basically dismantling the existing taxi industry. It's a political gamble and one they think they can win on. Yeah, and consumers lose. Uh, we're going to jam this in really close at the end because we sort of began the show with it and it's making news. Uh, elections BC, the proportional representation referendum extended another week now to December 7th. They've just released the latest update. 30% uh, of ballots now returned, about 18.9% processed. Uh, now that we have a week extension, just want to hear quickly from all three of you because we, a lot of discussion's been on how low the voter turnout could be. Is there hope now that we could get to the 40 to the 50% range and, and have that low voter turnout thing kind of fade into the background or not? So we'll just uh, start with you, Richard. Yeah, my guess, Shane, was always we were going to get to 40. I think I put it at 42%. The extension obviously helps get to that point. We've seen, you know, one or two percentage point jump each day. So at 30% now, uh, you know, with another two weeks left till the deadline, I don't expect to jump into the 50% range, but we could probably settle somewhere in the low 40s. We'll see. I don't think a lot of this, though, is about people needing more time. The extension is because of Canada Post. I think those that have decided they want to vote have voted. 
I think this is to ensure that all those ballots that are being sent and have been sent will arrive on time. So I don't know if the extension is any indication in terms of getting a higher turnout, but I do believe that it will at least make sure that all the ballots are counted that should be counted. Vaughn? Yeah, I think the extension is warranted. I think it's a good idea to have put it out for another week. Uh, if Richard's projection is right, and I don't have any reason to think he's wrong, of, say, 42%, 43% turnout, it's expected to be very, very close. So you could have us switch to PR, if that's the verdict, uh, with 21% of the BC electorate, 22% of the BC electorate uh, saying yes to PR, and then maybe a third uh, to uh, half of those people saying they want the new system. So it still isn't an overwhelming vote for a new system of elections, but it'll be good enough for the government if the New Democrats get a yes on this, they're going to go ahead with it with the support of the Greens. Mm. So all the problems still remain, Keith? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's good that the extension's there. I'm not surprised at all. We, we I, I had anticipated that, uh, but I don't think it's going to greatly... I, I agree with Richard. Most people who have voted have voted, um, or who want to vote have voted. I don't think it's going to mean a big uptick. So if we get to 50%, I'll be pleasantly surprised. I still think it's going to be you know around 40%. But I, I've been on record saying, and others have won as well, this is a flawed referendum process. It was badly handled by the NDP, badly implemented. It's going to lead... Thing to a, a potentially a tarnished outcome, and I agree with Vaughn. It could end up 10% of the population could be picking a new election model, and I just don't think that uh, serves democracy very well. Gentlemen, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to Fridays each and every week, uh, and hopefully you guys get some time over the weekend uh, to oh, get man. some sleep and put your feet up a little bit. Yeah. All right, take care. There we go. There's Thank Keith you. Baldry, Richard Zussman, and Vaughn Palmer. We'll talk to them again next week here on Inside Politics. Take a quick break. On the other side, Mount Royal Journalism professor Sean Holman joins us uh, to talk about his uh, take on uh, what's going on in, in the legislature and a uh, more deeper dive into the Speaker's office and the problems therein. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. It's always good to get away, even if it's just a mini one or a little retreat that'll leave you feeling relaxed and rejuvenated. Take a mini break at the Quam Lodge. Book a coach. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Mount Royal journalism professor and the man behind Public Eye Online, which I still miss very much, Sean Holman. Sean, how are you? Not too bad, Shane. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on, man. It's always good to talk to you. It's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, so, uh, off the top, just uh, I mean, you're you're no stranger to covering the legislature. Before we dive into some of the nuances of the speaker's office, what, what's your general? What are you thinking as you watch this whole thing unfold this week? Well, I think the point that's being missed is the systemic problem uh, that exists at the legislature when it comes to the transparency of how the legislature actually works. You know, this is the public house in British Columbia. This is the people's house in British Columbia, or at least it should be. But, you know, your previous guest described it as a village. I would say it's actually a clubhouse. And oftentimes that clubhouse operates in a very, very secretive manner. The Legislative Assembly is not covered by the province's freedom of information law, and that means when it comes to the actual operation of the legislature, we only know what the people at the legislature want to tell us 
as opposed to having a means of forcing them to tell us things they might not otherwise want to tell us. And I think that's a major problem. And this moment that we're having right now is an opportunity to change that. It's an opportunity to amend that. And that amendment isn't in the best interests of MLA, so you probably won't see a lot of them talking about that. Um, But it is in the best interests of the media and the public. So I would encourage all my former colleagues at the Legislative Press Gallery to be advocating for an extension of the Freedom of Information uh, legislation to the operations of the legislature. That's what's really needed here. Yeah, and for people listening uh, who may not know, the Speaker of the House is essentially a ministry unto itself, but the ministry is confined to the operations of the legislature. So you can file an FOI uh, through the Ministry of Transportation for stuff there or whatever other ministry, but this particular office is unique to the legislature, and of the ministries, you can't even file an FOI into it to determine what's going on. So um, other than the gallery lobbying for change, how do we how do we force that disclosure, that transparency? Because I can guarantee a, a couple of reporters doing uh, doing stories on it, or even listening to our conversation right now, I'm not sure that that's going to affect a political will for change. There. Well, I think that's actually um, I don't I don't think that's right actually because the the media has a powerful role to play when it comes to setting the agenda for what is discussed politically in the province. Um, We have, even with the changes that have happened that we've seen as a result of the Internet and social media, still one of the biggest megaphones out there. And if we start making noise about an issue, if we start raising questions about a particular issue, that's how change happens. And that's in part how we got freedom of information legislation in this country in the first place, is the media started making noise about it in the same way the media started making noise in the United States and got the Freedom of Information Act there. And the reason freedom of information is important, or at least one of the reasons it's important, is that it improves the democratic manners of public officials. If public officials, whether they're elected or unelected, know that they are being watched or have the potential to be watched, it reduces the chances of abuse of power um, and scandal um, because they'll know that they are under surveillance by the public. Um, So that's what we're really talking about here, and that's why freedom of information legislation, especially freedom of information legislation when it comes to the operations of the legislative assembly, is so important. What do you think when you see, uh, and and it's specific to this story, what do you think when you see things like uh, Speaker Daryl Plackus just bringing in a buddy and giving him a job, uh, the job wasn't out to tender, he just got handed to him, Uh, what do you think when you see Daryl Plackus and and, and Mr. Mullen uh, clandestinely and without the knowledge of the House, uh, going out and investigating officers of the legislature. Is that, is that an extremely, I mean, in one, it, it, it's a little suspect, but in the other, is that extremely offside? And I, I don't actually think it's offside in the sense that this is the way in which business has been conducted at the legislature for a very, very long time. Um, you know, as I said, it's, it, it is a bit of a clubhouse. 
Um, and, and there have been issues about the unaccountability uh, and the unaccountable behavior of speakers and legislative uh, assembly staff in the past. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, Shane, but there was that incident where journalist and columnist Brian Salmi, um, Claude Richmond, uh, was quite upset with him, uh, quite upset with the way in which he was going to or planning to cover the legislature and some of the things he had written about the legislature. And there was all this controversy when uh, he wasn't allowed to cover the legislature. I remember myself asking Bill Barisoff some questions when he was Speaker uh, of the House um, about a review uh, that he was going to launch into the independent offices of the legislature, that's offices like Auditor General, Children. Uh, family represent children and youth representative, and uh, when I tried to, to ask him questions about that in the hallway of the speaker's corridor, um, I was hauled into his office, uh, as was the president of the press gallery. It's a pretty unaccountable system that we've got down there, and I think that's why we're seeing, in part, some of the situation, depending on what it is that we're seeing right now. Uh, last question. Outside of just getting uh, the legislature itself open to FOI investigations or FOI requests, is there anything outside of that in your, in your mind that could increase transparency and accountability here, or is it strictly hung on uh, opening it up to freedom of information? I, I think that's really the, the solution, um, because if it was opened up to freedom of information legislation, then there would be more of an opportunity to hold the Speaker and hold the Legislative Assembly staff to account. And I think the other important thing to remember as well is because the Speaker and the Legislative Assembly staff wield such dictatorial power um, at the legislature, it's, it's very difficult to ask questions of them. Um, it, it's very difficult to hold them to account. Um, and they can make life difficult for you if, if they don't like the way in which you're doing that. Um, so I think probably a, a review of the authority of those offices um, probably is, is also warranted as well. Perfect. Sean, it's always a pleasure. I don't get to chat with you enough, and I hope you're doing well. But thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Shane. There we go. Mount Royal journalism professor Sean Holman. Uh, people here in B.C. might remember him as being the guy behind Public Eye Online, which covered the legislature quite well for a number of years. So my thanks to him and Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Richard Zussman, my other guests on Inside Politics today. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Avola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.